Great. So welcome everyone to YC's Founder Fireside. My name is Anu Hariharan, and I'm a managing director at Y Combinator, where I work with our growth stage companies. I'm here today with Tomer London, the co-founder and CPO of Gusto. I've known Gusto for, I think, close to now seven years um, and work very closely with Tomer on the board. Gusto provides growing businesses with everything to take care of their team and was part of YC's Winter 2012 batch. Welcome, Tomer. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And today, Gusto has a special announcement to make where you just released a blog post um, about it, which is you're making it easier for software providers to bake compliance into embedded payroll, as well as new vertical SaaS partners, which is really exciting because now SaaS partners that serve laundromats, SaaS, construction, restaurants, they can all offer, offer payroll more seamlessly through Gusto. Yeah. So congrats, so congrats to you and your team. It would be good, Tomer, just to kick it off. If you can just explain what embedded payroll is and what the announcement is today. Yeah, thanks, Anu. Well, uh, again, just excited to uh, to have this chat with you. Yeah, today is really, really exciting for me. I feel um, this has been, in a way, more than 10 years in the making. Um, basically, what we're doing with Gusto Embedded is to help um, basically take 10, over 10 years of our experience building payroll software and compliance uh, built into it um, and making it available to any software platform, any software company who wants to ship their own payroll product to the market. And it's not just the software side, it's also the service side and the operation side. It's everything that's happening behind the scenes. You know, payroll is quite a complex thing. It's not just like a quick UX flow of, you know, you you put people's names and you say how much you want to pay them and you click and you're done. There's a lot happening behind the scenes uh, with filings and tax calculations and um, and um, you know multi year long um, um, conversations basically through uh, through no through um, uh, this compliance um, uh, flows with different state agencies. There's fifty thousand plus. Um, uh, tax codes out there in the U.S. So anyway, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. It's not just the software. So anyway, today we're launching that we're we're announcing this really um, uh, just a lot of great progress that's happening, both in um, signing up a lot of new uh, platforms across all these vertical SaaS players that you mentioned, um, whether it's construction vertical SaaS or dental offices vertical SaaS or accountants or uh, and more and more and more. Um, but also a bunch of new features and functionality. But we can talk about it later. don't want to take all the time right now. Yeah. And, you know, Toma, you bring up a very good point about payroll. I didn't realize this when I first met you all maybe like seven years ago. But, you know, for most YC companies, we always say, ship fast, get feedback, iterate. And I remember very vividly you pointing this out to me. Um, which is, I think in the first year of Gusto, you all had less than 100 customers. And I asked you, wow, that's slow. Because usually in Demo Day, we often ask, or before Demo Day, we often ask, hey, if you signed up 100 in two weeks, can you sign up 1,000? And I remember this point you made. Well, if payroll doesn't work, it, it, there is no coming back. The customer will be displeased because they didn't get their paycheck. 
So it was one of those unique products where you had to make it work perfectly. There was no room for error. And that's why you all took a lot of time to scale it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you get payroll wrong, someone is not getting paid or even worse than that, in my opinion, um, you know, years later, you may get a notice from the IRS saying that you did your taxes wrong and now you need to go back um, if you're an employee and fix your W-2, like, you know, get new W-2s and work with IRS. Or if you're an employer, go back to employees who left you and are not a part of the company years now and um, go and work with their taxes. So um, the the cost of being wrong is extremely high. So um, I, I really think that there's a set of uh, product and technology um, uh, software out there that you really have to get it right in order for for you to deliver the promise for your customers. And if and the cost of not doing that is terrible for your customers and then terrible for your business. Great. So I expect so many people today, I, I see it on the Twitter space, are actually founders and CEOs. So before we dive into your launch today, I'd actually like to take this opportunity to discuss how to build for new verticals and how to think about this as a founder and CEO since quite a few of them are actually probably in the very early stages in the audience. So some background for the audience. Over the last 10 years, Gusto has scaled to build for customer segments, many customer segments. I don't know how many of you know this, but Gusto first started servicing startups. Then they started servicing SMBs, starting with florists, then accountants. And now with Gusto embedded payroll, developers of their customers who are embedding payroll directly into software. So Toma, can you go back and tell us your journey of starting with startups? Why did you start? And if I remember right, Gusto was a pivot in the batch. It wasn't your application, but when you, but, but we'll save that for another time. But when you decided that payroll software is what you're gonna build, why did you start with startups? And how did you sort of think about customer segments, especially in that first year? Yeah, totally. So I would say we started with this uh, realization that, um, you know, Josh, Eddie, and I all come from small business families. My dad has a clothing store for 35 years now. Um, and seeing and growing up in that environment, seeing how it feels like to be a part of a, of a business and running a business, I learned that, you know, business owners and managers have all those different hats they need to wear. It's just incredibly busy. They need to be the salesperson and then the marketer and then the the cleaner and then the janitor and the accountant, like it's all in, in one, all these different hats. So we knew that businesses, specifically small businesses were very, um, um, you know, they really had this need of helping, of getting more um, leverage and software can be really, really, really great at that. Um, we also knew that this, we also really believe in this idea by building our own startup companies before Gusto, that the most important thing in any business is their people. And that's what makes or breaks the business. So if you kind of do, do this plus this together, we ended up with this really grand vision of our goal is to help you know any business, small, large, growing, um, to help you know basically build a great place to work where um, and really serve the entire life uh, of the, the employee life cycle, so people can build great places to work. So that's kind of the big grand vision. So the question is, the founder is like, okay, that's cool, but where do you start? Um, and that's where kind of your story, Anu, comes in, which is starting not just with, I would say, startups, but also we, it was even much, much more narrow than that. Those first hundred customers were technology companies who are based in California, who have no health insurance or any other benefits because we were not able to support it, you know, and were 
agree to be paid, you know, nine days after running payroll. So it's extremely, extremely small group of target customer to start. Um, and that's really where we started. And I think when you think about your own company and how to choose your customer segment, there's three important things that have to happen. First, um, you, need to f- you need to make sure that you're choosing a segment where they have an important customer problem that they're trying to solve. Like it's kind of this you know, painkiller versus vitamin analogy. The second thing is that you need to make sure that the product that you're building and you're starting small um, has to solve it and customers have to love it. The third thing is that you need to be able to reach this customer, right? So important customer problem, your product actually solves it. And then finally, you can reach this customer. And startups was, a, or at least this, this really, really tiny group of startups was a good place for us to start because um, we could reach them. We were at a part of YC batch, a bunch of companies were around us, a lot of our network and people that we know um, um, was really, really easy to, to get to. And, and, um, and more importantly, um, technology companies are very viral. So when you start selling and if you do a good job solving problems for them, you, can, you actually get really nice word of mouth. Um, we knew that we can solve the problem for them because we really scoped it down to a problem we can solve with this initial product. And then finally, we knew it was an important problem because payroll is such a pain um, for, uh, for businesses today, as I mentioned earlier. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know that in the first year you uh, gave payroll nine days after the payroll was done. So what was your competition like? Was I mean, how before Gusto, how did startups pay employees? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, 10 years ago, um, I think um, uh, if you kind of paint the picture of back then, the majority of the payroll industry um, was companies like ADP and Paychex and kind of really large, more traditional companies. And for you to run payroll, what you had to do is you had to pick up the phone and talk with someone and tell, tell them to run payroll. You had to take you know, use fax machines in order to send the hours back and forth. You have to meet a person, someone in person, a rap in person in order to sign you up so they believe you're a real business and underwrite you for payment. So um, it was the old kind of traditional world. Um, and I think uh, what, um, what when we came in, uh, one of the insights was, you know, to the, this idea of, hey, all of this process can be made so much easier to use and simple so that you don't need to be a professional to run payroll and you should be able to do it you know, on your computer on the weekend, in the evening without talking with anyone. Um, and that, that's kind of the, the, I would say, the first insight. The second insight was that employees are a critical part of the system. And if we build a really great experience for employees, um, it's going to make the employer's lives easier. So for example, employees enter their own information when they log in as a, or, or when they sign up and, and to, the, to the company as opposed to the employers need to you know, kind of go back and forth with them um, and that was kind of the very, very, very initial thing. And to your point, like ask those customers who agreed to um, take on this product, despite the fact that we were 10, they took like, you know, like eight days to get paid. Um, they did it because we solved the payment that was much more important for them, which is just the, the, the complexity around payroll. And, they, and for them, this was important enough. That's, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, talk about product market fit. If after all that friction, they love the product and they're using, that's a sign that you truly are solving a pain point. Um, Now let's, so you were working with startups, the majority of the first hundred startups, as you said, were tech startups based in California, where you were taking more than nine days to process payroll, but things were going really well. I remember NPS 
for Gusto from the very early days was very strong. So then why did you decide to build for SMBs? You could have pretty much just focused on startups. Why SMBs? Right. So as I mentioned earlier, we started with this really big vision of we want to go and we want to serve um, um, this, the larger market, uh, not just startup, but even not just SMBs. Um, but we had to start somewhere. So we started with startups and specifically start the, the, this narrower version of startups um, because that's where we felt we could get really great customer love with the product that we were able to build. But then as we spend more time and obviously started expanding, not just California, but multiple states, not just, you know, eight, like, you know, eight days to get paid, but same day, like next, like two days, then one day and then same day payments. Um, and then obviously supported health insurance and other things. We felt that we were ready to support, uh, um, you know, we kind of take the next steps to our towards our product vision and go to uh, to small businesses. The really important thing when you, in my opinion, when you move from one vertical and kind of start expanding towards your vision is you have to make sure that you maintain that early customer love. Um, you know, I know you mentioned like we had, like, you know, the, the initial, our NPSs were always um, um, in the um, high 80s and that's just one measure not that the nps is perfect in any way but it's a measure to show um, um customer love was extremely high and and that creates high word of mouth and trust and and really creates a really great um, um uh, kind of backwind for your growth and when you the, the risk of expanding too early is that your product is just not ready and then you're going to lose that so the way one of the ways that i think to know whether you're ready is to just look at your current customer base and look at the people who want to use your product the people who are using your product that perhaps are a little bit adjacent um to what you thought um you were supposed to serve and uh learn from them talk with them what do you like about the product and ask yourself whether you can um uh, take a few um, steps with your product to really double down on that and get a lot of customer love from this new segment. So the, the answer is already under your nose usually. If you don't get traction and from like, let's say, you know, you, you, you build, you have software for uh, hairdressers today and you believe that, you know, the same software can be used by spas, but you don't have a single spa customer and you just really hope it's going to work. I don't think that's a good strategy. I think you have to listen to your, your current audience. That's a very good point you make, which is, uh, I think that's one of the common mistakes I've seen founders make when they expand to a new vertical, is not deliberately, but accidentally losing focus of the existing customer segment. So how, I mean, tech startups are just very different from spas and floors. So how did you maintain the customer love of the existing segment then? Like, what did you do to continuously measure that? So when we launched the initial product, although we started with a very small scoped audience, we never used language whether or, or we never built a product or used language to say that this product is just for startups. We've never done that. It was always like this is for um, you know businesses at different sizes. Um, we did talk about sizes a little bit, but it was never like just specifically startups um, because we knew this it would coming. It, it was coming, so we didn't know perhaps if it it would take one two or three years but we know that we knew that this is the next thing to do and, and perhaps like the the generalizable advice here is really think about your vision and make sure that you don't put yourself in a corner um when you do want to kind of move to the next uh, to the next thing we had that by the way with our brand which is kind of another thing with there's a, you know with there's two types of expansions right you can expand customer audience you can expand the product set that you're doing and one thing that we uh what we did have in the beginning that we put ourselves in the corner is we started the company with the name Zen Payroll. 
uh, for folks who don't know, for the first few couple of years for the company, it was Zenpiro, and then we uh, rebranded to Gusto. And um, that the reason what we quickly moved as fast as we could basically was because we saw that that initial name is not very uh, forward looking. If we're thinking about um, our wider strategy around, um, you know, creating this people platform um, for every single activity in your in your workforce uh, for all these different sort of companies. So it's not just payroll; it's also benefits and employee onboarding and software and hardware provisioning and uh, IT and um, um, and everything else that that happens in the employee lifecycle. Yeah, I remember, and it was not an easy transition, but I think you all did it at the right time. Well, I have um, three kids, and I can tell you that naming the company, renaming the company was a much harder exercise than uh, finding the right name for my kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure so, and I know because, um, you know, acquiring SMBs is not easy, and so when you're changing the brand name, you know, you have to put it pretty much you're starting from scratch. Um, that was going to be my next question, which is, you know, if you look at startups in general, um, they find most startups find it very hard and have struggled to tackle the SMB market. Why do you think that it's, you had, I mean, Gusto is an amazing success. I mean, you serve close to 200,000 SMBs, you're a beloved product in the SMB segment. But why do you think that is? Why have people historically struggled? Yeah, today we serve, you know, um, lots more, like much more than 200,000 uh, businesses across all different sizes, whether it's customers, you know, whether it's small business who just started or companies over, you know, they're on 500 employees. Um, so, yeah, we, we reached a really, a really nice scale um, across small businesses and scale companies. The... The, I think the reason why it has historically been so tough is because SMBs are so hard to reach, right? So it's these three points that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is point number three, which is, you know, you can have a great product that people love, um, but you can't reach the audience. So small businesses were extremely hard to reach. And I think something happened around that time when Gusto started where small businesses, there was a generational shift where people started trusting the internet more. And I believe that, um, for example, internet banking was a really big part of it. You know, if you remember back in, the day, in, in these days, um, around 2010 and, and, and the, those, those a couple of years around that area, you got um, just commercial banks pushing really strongly for people to use their online system and not come to the branch because it's just much, much better for their economics, better user experience. And they basically educated an entire generation of SMBs and um, that they can trust the internet with things like money. And then um, payroll was it was it was the right time for people to say, hey, can I do my payroll online? So you started looking at you know Google search results and things like that, and you know it's like, hey, interesting. Actually, you know, online payroll is becoming a thing. People are actually looking like they they actually looking for something like this. So this is my intuition around like what happened back then, and you know why that was the right time for Gus to start. I think if we were to start the company four years earlier it wouldn't have worked so well because people were not ready yet and educated. So, but back to today. So what's happening today and if, if, how do you do SMBs? I think, so two things. I think one, um, SMBs are online. Small businesses are online. They're looking for solutions. They want to have their problems solved. They have a lot of pain points, as I mentioned earlier. And there's a lot of great companies who are already serving them. Um, but then that is already known for the past several years. So what's coming next? I think the next wave of this, and if I'm now to build a new small business focused company, I would focus on a vertical. 
I think that when you truly understand a specific customer segment, understand how they start their day, how they speak with their customers, how their business model looks like, you know, what's their common uh, difficulties and competition looks like, you can build a great product for them that's much, uh, that's really tailored to their needs. And small businesses, especially now with the recession potentially coming, you know, there's different points of view there, but um, in moments like this, people want to consolidate and have everything in one place. So if I were to start a new company today focused on SMB, uh, it would probably be picking a vertical, a specific small business segment that I understand really, really well and going all in and building a great product for them. That's what I would do. And I think you can reach people really well this way because, you know, if you really understand, like, you know, my dad's store, clothing store, right? If you really understand clothing store, you know where they hang out, you know their language, you know what speaks to them. Um, and you should be able to find a great scalable way of finding them online. That's a very nuanced, well-tailored advice, which is you're essentially saying vertical SaaS is going to be the new trend in SMBs and catering end-to-end for each vertical. Are there, I mean, I'm sure in Gusto you interact with all sorts of verticals. Are there some verticals you are more familiar with or more excited by in the problem set that you see? Ah, uh, so there's so many and, you know, it's so fun. So I, I get to work with, through this embedded um, payroll business, I get to speak in the morning with, you know, vertical SaaS for spas and salons and then go to someone who's focusing on construction, uh, vertical SaaS, and then moving to like dental offices and then, you know, uh, lawyers and like laundry mats. Like it, it's it's kind of really, really fun to learn about all these restaurants, like all these different small businesses. Um, I would say, you know, if there's any, I think there's some spaces that are just more competitive today. So, you know, if you kind of take a step back and you ask yourself, there's already public companies that are vertical SaaS, right? If you look at companies like uh, Square and Toast, uh, for example, and um, so so some companies, some verticals are much more developed than others. And probably um, the more exciting things are things that are uh, earlier in the, um, uh, in this space. So verticals that yeah. were not, they're not yet like kind of fully like modernized. Yeah, yeah. Some of the ones you're pointing out like dental services or spa and salons still have a lot of room to grow. Um, that's true. Let me ask you this. Uh, I want to jump to the third segment, which is developers. But before that, you've served a lot of startups. You've served a lot of SMBs. What's different about serving SMBs from a customer lens? What have you noticed they want versus that's different from what startups want? Is that any? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so different multiple things uh, come to mind. The the thing when you build a business focus on startups, um, there is actually a risk there. I would here's a note of caution: is that startups with the the, the economics their work if you can scale with them, because you know there's a high turnover company. If you you know literally think about a startup as a as a venture funded or a hopefully venture funded company. Um, they, they come and go, they die a lot when the funding stops. And the, the real economics, similar to VCs, how VCs work, the real economics come from the big winners. So if you're focused on startups, I would say that probably startups is a good place to start your journey, but you have to think about how do you scale up and keep those businesses with you when they reach thousands of employees or, or much, much larger scale. Um, that's not the same dynamic with small businesses. So small businesses, the difference is that the scale is just much larger. There's a lot more of them. There's 6 million employers in the U.S. There's around 25 million, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, 
um, businesses that are not even employers. Um, and some of them stick, uh, stay along for a long, long, long time. Again, uh, companies for that stay for decades, family businesses, and they never, they actually don't grow. Some of them do, but it's quite rare that they grow to thousands of employees. So you need to build a business model that supports that situation. So churn, like, you know, just business closure is still a big thing. Obviously, enterprise companies, large companies um, disappear much less. So you still have this high turnover of small businesses, but some of them stick. And then the, and then the market is much larger. So you need to build a business model that really works well uh, for that uh, dynamic. And often it means thinking about things like share of wallet and increasing ACV over time and things like that. Um there is, you know, a bunch of other things to talk through around, like the custom, the type of customer too, and how they think about their business, um, and what their priorities are. I would say with startups, it's a, obviously growth really, really matters. The underlying premise of of a startup is that they can grow to not basically to grow out of being a startup and being a big tech company. Where small businesses, that's perhaps not the case, and the needs that they have are, as well as their um, the way they they think about pricing. Um, and their sensitivity to price is um, more focused to other needs, perhaps not about growth and more about maintenance and improved profitability and saving time so I can spend more time with my family as opposed to grow, grow, grow and, and try to uh, get to the next milestone. Yeah, that's very good points you made. And I think what you all did very well at Custer is like truly understanding your different customer segment and their needs and even building your you know support team uh, to scale with that. Uh, keeping the lens of what the customer truly requires. Yeah, maybe I'll say one thing about that support piece. Um, I mentioned in the beginning that payroll is not just um, technology, it's also operations and service. And I think that idea, that concept actually applies to other places too. And if you're building a company right now and you think about the solution that you're providing, put yourself in the shoes of the customer and don't think just about their online experience because you're a developer and that's kind of, or you're a designer or, you know, you just love technology and you just want to have everything online. Think about the entire experience, including the people, the service side, the operation side, um, um, the end-to-end experience, because the customer doesn't care about the fact that these are different departments or something like that. They just have one brand for us it's gusto and gusto needs to be absolutely freaking delightful and awesome and fun to use so you talk about it to your fellow business owners um whether you talk with someone on the phone or email or whether you just use a new app that we just launched within our platform yeah that's such good advice especially as you scale because i think people forget um it's not just one feature. It's like, what's the, how much friction are you removing from the customer end? And how truly is it delightful? Uh, now let's talk about your next customer segment. So recently, Gusto's added developers as a new segment. I'll be honest, I never predicted this in Gusto's journey. So why did you pursue developers? And how did you decide to service them? Yeah, so we've been working with developers. Our API was, um, we have had a public API since 2013. and. I have a lot of tech partners using this API, making just expanding the product functionality for Gusto and for our customers. But what this push with Gusto Embedded is really taking it to the next level. So the idea here is, again, I have a really big belief, and Gusto has a big belief in vertical SaaS. I think that in the end of the day, what's best for the customer ends up in the long term being the, um, the, you know, the, the reality. 
So I believe that for many segments, for many verticals, it's actually much better to have an all-in-one platform for your to run your business or your small business. And if that's the case, then we want the payroll and HR and benefits and the entire thing around employee management should be a part of that platform. Um, so for us, for Gusto, it's like, okay, great. Well, we, ha- we know how to do this thing. We've been doing this for, um, for 10 years, for hundreds of thousands of, of, of companies. And uh, we can take and basically everything that we've built, not just the technology, but again, the compliance side as well, which is extremely tricky, um, and bake it in. And, and just basically bake it in as a product that's really easy to implement. So if you're a new um, a vertical SaaS player or you're, or someone who wants to expand their footprint to solve more problems for their customers, you should be able to um, build a payroll product and ship it in 30 days, 60 days, instead of spending 10 years like, like we did. Yeah, that's you know that's really like I know payroll products takes a long time, but I know it wasn't a, it wouldn't wouldn't have been an easy decision uh, because if you think about it, you were directly acquiring these SMBs as your customers and offering payroll and then HR, and you know if you had to use the counter view to this, which is embedded finance feels a little bit like you're giving up the customer relationship through the partner. Is that true? How did you all think about it? Yeah, totally. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, um, there's kind of two things. There's what there is, there, there is the, how do you operation? Like first, like what do you believe the future of the industry is? And then you just, you have, you can't ignore reality. Like that's the truth. And that's the truth. You have to go and do that. Like the Netflix exam, the famous Netflix example of moving the killing the DVD business, moving to streaming, uh, because that's that's where they, where they saw the future and what Blockbuster stayed behind and all that. That's a great story. Um, you know, I'm sure it wasn't an easy thing to do at the time, but they had to go through it. Um, and then for for us, what we when I think here, you know, I don't I don't know if it's going to be as big as in that kind of video streaming example, but I do feel like there's a really big change here that's really great for customers. So Gusto is, you know, we can't we shouldn't be fighting it. We should the other way around. We should make it happen. We should be the one to create that change. So that's like the optimistic side. Now that, okay, now here's the hard part, right? Which is like, oh gosh, like we have, we have this great business. It's going really well. People are really, really happy. Um, how are we going to, why would we move resources or how are you going to re- remove resources from, from this business and start building something new? And I think that's one of these hard business decisions that make a difference um, in the long run. And um, to do that, you know that you're probably sacrificing growth in your core business because you're taking away resources from it. But that's in order to make the long term um, much more sustainable and like really aligned with what's best for the customer. So that's why I feel for us, if, since we and this is something that, you know, I knew we definitely talked about in the board a lot. Like this is a, a type of a decision that it's not it couldn't be a small product team that that wants to do this. This is like all the way CEO, executive staff, board. Everyone needs to understand that, hey, we believe in this thing and we're going to go all in there. And that's the future. Um, so that's why we, we did it. And it wasn't an easy decision, but I think it's the right one. You made some two very important points there, which is one, you know, how important it is to be see where, what's right for the customer. And if the customer wants an all-in-one product, you know, you have to make this decision, which we don't know time will show, but make, as you said, may or may not cannibalize the current core business, but it's, it's like you have to, if you use the lens of make something people want, you know, right. you see that 
you customer has been around now for 10 years and you see how the trend is changing and you respond to it right so I mean, I think kudos to you all to have made that decision. And I know uh, it was something that Gusto proactively pushed. Uh, by you know, it, it, sorry, I knew you keep going. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was about to say, you know, and, and the example of like why I think it's better for customers just to make it real. It's so one obvious benefit is bringing it all into a single system, right? The data is integrated. It's all going in the same place. You trust a single vendor for you to build your barbershop or your dentist shop um, and then you just run the entire thing from it and it's all connected but there's another thing which is you can actually build a better payroll product this way so for example if you are you know one of our partners called Archie and um, they basically focus on dent the this dentist space and they people there get paid as a percent of production um, like a percent basically of you know the revenue that they that they, they they create and if that's the case then you can get you could basically build a custom payroll system that just to focus on these type of workers, which a uh, um, horizontal, um, you know, solution like ADP paychecks will not be able to, or Gusto will not be able to do because they're not customized just for your, your, your situation. Like we have the same thing with a company uh, called, you know, companies like called Sense that does the um, kind of in the laundromats, um, um, dry cleaning space, and people there get paid by folds, like number of. Um, some of them get paid by number of basically again like the, the the activity that they create and the customer value they create and they can integrate that into the payroll system itself, all connected. So that's the some of the cool stuff you can build when you really understand the vertical you're in. Yeah, well, many in the audience and seeing are developers and some are founders. So how should they think about who to partner with? You know, this is another thing. Uh, which comes up as the number one question in YC officers, build versus buy, right? Or build right. versus partner. So when should a founder go directly to the industry and just build everything? And, and then when should they follow the embedded route? Right, yeah. So I think that the the, the kind of the, the um, I would say super, the first step advice, the, the most basic advice is you need to own what is core and then the next question, okay, that sounds cool, but what is core? What, what does that mean? How do you know what's core? And I think the answer there is to think about what is the unique insight that you have in the software, in the business that you're creating. And you want to make sure you own your destiny around that insight. And that could be, hey, we have like a, um, you know, the a system of record where we have all the data in one place and that's where everything's coming from. So we really need to own the system of record. That's really the innovation. Or it could be that the innovation is a sort of one of the user experiences or is a payment flow or is a technology backend, like a security thing, whatever it is that you're doing really uniquely and you think is the kind of the driver of your business, you really need to make sure that, that you own. So that's core. And then I would say um, partner or, you know, buy, it kind of depends how you define it, but, you know, use like an external vendor for things that you want to, uh, first that you want to try out. So, you know, you, you may think, hey, that could become a core one day, but let's try this thing out. And it's much cheaper to try it out with a partner uh, instead um, to kind of get to market quickly. Um, or things that you just don't want to actually like reinvent the wheel in and you just need to make it work. So, you know, if I'm building a, a product that needs to send SMS and it's that's just like one neat part of what I do, but it's not a huge deal, then definitely I'm going to use Twilio for that. I'm not going to. Um, rebuild the SMS delivery or uh, payments with Stripe and, and so forth, many examples like that. So um, the first question to ask, and I think it's really important for founders and 
and product executives to be aligned on is what is our core? What do we have to, where do we innovate and where and everything else, let's not uh, spend our resources there because we are so resource constrained. And then in terms of how to choose a partner, what I would advise is look at this from the customer lens. So ask yourself like for my customer, what would be a successful product here? And make sure that the product that you're, that the company that you're um, partnering with fulfills that, those needs. So for the example of payroll, just to, to use that as an example, a, if I am, a, if I am you know, a, a vertical SaaS like uh, Vagaro that has uh, stylists, you know, and they kind of in, in that space, um, and I want to go and, uh, and, and add, be able to pay them because they've managed their entire business through, uh, through Vagaro today, other than payroll, then I need to ask them what, what is a good payroll system for them. And the answer is not just like a place where I can plug in data and click a button and end up having a payment on the other side the next day, but rather something that does not cause, like that I won't get fined in the end of the year because I miscalculated taxes or I misfiled payroll or something that will not, you know, get my employees to quit because they're, I screwed up their taxes. So you really got to think the end to end side of things like that could include support for example you get to make sure that whoever you partner with you really understand what happens when there's an issue and the customer is having um a problem so customer point of view that's my one-liner there yeah and in addition to what you said uh, um you know about the resource constraint point which is very real for startups right they never have the scale of resources that they need and therefore to like try and do everything, then you kind of drop the ball on a few things. Um, so the, in addition to the resource constraint point, I think the that's one that's real. The other thing that um, that you're highlighting here is what's not core, right? Which is right. something like payroll. Having worked with Gusto, I could tell like it is so complex and so nuanced that I don't understand why everyone will try to build payroll. But sometimes it's like you need to know that to be able to figure out is it core or not and is it worth putting your resources against that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, there, there's been, uh, um, I, I think that's a great, great, great way of uh, really clarifying it. I think maybe what we're talking about behind kind of to connect these dots is quality. You've got to make sure, if, at the end of the day, you want to shape a high-quality product for your customers. So whatever you own, you have to put enough resources on so it's successful and really high-quality. Whatever you, Everything else, you make sure that it's high-quality by bringing in the right partner. So it's all about the end-to-end -end user experience in the end. You've got to make sure that you don't put that aside. Uh, you know, One mistake that really often software companies do is they just quickly want to bring a partner up, set up, and just get something out quickly. Um, and they end up actually losing customer fate because of it and, and kind of screwing themselves because it's not just that they don't get the right attach rate. They also kind of lost uh, customer confidence um, in, their, in their product. Absolutely. And for the audience, I uh, highly recommend you read this book by Jeff Lawson, uh, Ask Your Developer. He actually has a very good framework for Build versus Partner, which a lot of the stuff, Joba, you actually touched on. Uh, but he actually talks about how everything, like most software is going to move towards embedded and why um, developer becomes the primary customer. And then through the lens of the developer, how you think about the end customer. 
So it resonates a lot today in terms of what you're saying. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about embedded finance. Your announcement today makes it is is based essentially saying that you're going to make it easier for software providers to bake compliance into embedded payroll. You also mentioned that many of your developers have been using the payroll API since 2013. I would assume that they would have assumed that compliance is baked in. Is that not true, or what additional compliance work is going on to this? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great question. So there's a bunch. There's not, there's we we count we counted in like just in the first three months. There's over sixteen. There's around sixteen. That's the number I saw. Um, new features and functionalities that were added um, specifically around around this stuff. So there's a, there's a long list, but I'll give you the kind of the an example of what I mean. So one of the things that we launched and I'm really excited about is this idea of embeddable uh, workflows. So you so the way you use embedded so, so how does it actually look like to build your own payroll product with uh with embedded right there's kind of two paths path number one is you have just everything is apis so you come in and you custom build every single thing exactly the way the user experience the way you want it so you, it's really like every single thing adding an employee new employee uh doing a tax setup running reports running payroll um all these things are just completely um customized there's another way which is you and that's kind of one of the new things that we're talking about here is um, you actually use pre-built flows that we already built for you, and you just integrate them into your app. And then you can pick and choose, hey, to that conversation earlier with what, what's core and what's not, here's the area that I want to innovate. It could be, for example, run payroll, but here's the area that I don't care much about, and that's like state tax setup. And um, why that is important is because in kind of where compliance comes in is that when, we, when you use these pre-built flows, we bring in a lot of our knowledge and experience in the past 10 years to make sure that these flows are right for the customer, not just in the way we ask you know, for data inputs, but also the way we do validations and the way we keep updating things. Because regulation changes every year for sure, but sometimes every quarter and every month, depends on the state and the local government. So these components just update with the latest regulations. You don't need to kind of keep track of that. So these are, this is an example of what I mean by you know, built-in compliance. Obviously, you know, everything that we do in Gusto.com, like just since day one is all about making sure that we protect the customer. That's our job. But here we make it really easy for developers to both ship something quickly out to the market and make sure that it's um, uh, it's compliant for the long term and no one comes back a few years later with an issue. Yeah, did I read this right on your blog post? Did you say like one third of the companies in the U.S. get fined for some kind of mistake on payroll? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's really painful because um, again, like the, the bad payroll means fines, and a third of companies in the U.S. today get fined every year for not doing payroll correctly, and um, that, that's that's pretty bad for for folks and pretty bad experience. So. Um, the goal is to make sure that as this this industry goes through this transition and you have all these vertical SaaS companies integrate payroll, they make sure that they protect their customers. So they're not a part of that statistic. Got it. And in general, compliance is really hard, right? It's, it's just not just for payroll. It's definitely the hardest part of payroll. But if you think about fintech companies that are building for various customers, uh, lending, healthcare, they all have compliance. What advice do you have for founders who are essentially building in complicated industries uh, focused on compliance? What did Gusto do right in the early days that has served you well today? Right. I think 
my first advice there is to understand which part of your product is reg like highly regulated and you really got to get it right and accurate and there's and then which parts of your product are not and that is important because of the way you set up your your culture and how you build software you know there's like this old kind of facebook uh tagline around uh move fast and break things um and i think that um you know, I know that they've changed it since, but it, it does give like a, a sense of like this idea of like, hey, some things can be fixed later. And, but, but the truth is there, the complimentary is that some things can't. So you really need to make sure where you spend a lot of your time um, and you put quality first. You don't, you never ship anything to customer that's not absolutely perfect. Whereas on the other, but also letting, enabling your culture to uh, have parts of the company that's much more iterative and fast and can quickly learn and adjust with new inputs. It's not a monolith, it cannot be a monolithic culture. So that will be my, my first kind of advice around building um, engineering product design teams in this kind of compliance focused, in a compliance focused area. The second thing is to really embrace cross-functional work. And what that means is early on in your startup journey, bring in like amazing, like top, top class um, regulatory compliance legal folks. I always say that in Gusto's our secret sauce is our is actually our compliance and legal team. Um, because they're they are not just extremely knowledgeable, but we choose folks who are also creative and they're builders. So they come in and they work with our product teams to make sure not just how we how we you know protect the customer, uh, but also how do we innovate and make something better for them. So bring that early on. Make sure they're a part of the brainstorms and what might make the product great. Um, and we've done that one of our very, very first hires and you and I talked about it in another conversation uh, was, uh, was, you know, a compliance uh, person from, uh, from, from paychecks. And then another person was someone who built the compliance, uh, was really in charge of the compliance for, for two major uh, other payroll providers. So um, really, really uh, important to bring that early on to the culture. Yeah, so I want to double click on both for this group. So number one, you said you have to be clear on what can't be broken versus what can be. Um, with your EPD, engineering product design and data team. So go back to the first year of Gusto, first or second year, first two years. How did, what was your framework or guidance to your engineering team at the time? Like what aspects of payroll did you say was okay to like ship and iterate versus what aspects was not okay? Yeah, 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 it's a, it's a I love that. Okay, so I'm gonna bring myself back to that world. Uh, in the very, very early days. And the first thing that comes to mind is that the, the core of the tax calculations and compliance, and in the end of the day, making sure that the, the outcome of the, the, the actual, the payroll system in the physical world, not the software, the physical world, right? Pay, move, money moving and, and, and uh, IRS filings and things like that, that has to be right. And there's no cutting corners there, zero, right? Um, so that's one. On the other hand, here's an area where it's totally fine. Um, it took us, I want to say a year and a half maybe, or something like that, to actually start charging customers. And what we did is we basically never got around to build, or it took us a while to get around to build a billing system for our customers. Now, our customers chose to pay. So they're already at that point of time, everyone, uh, you know, they were part of a paid package and they knew that they were paying, but they probably noticed and didn't complain, by the way, 
uh, perhaps that they were not getting actually charged. In the end, we did start charging them, obviously. So that's an example of something that can totally broken, does not have like a customer impact. If anything, it has, um, you know, um, you know, more impact on you. Uh, but uh, totally the right way to prioritize looking backwards too. Um, here's another place to kind of make it a little bit more nuanced, which is user experience, right? So you could actually say another uh, viewpoint is like, hey, if the, what's important is the physical world, then maybe it's okay to have a lower end UI in some areas. And my answer there was actually is, is actually um, that's a, that's a really tricky proposition because for us, one of our core innovations was user experience innovation. It had to look and feel and really um, um, like 10x better than everything else out there in terms of the user experience. So we were so we had a we didn't uh, cut corners there in terms of where we wanted to get um, uh, kind of our goal. But what we did do there is iterate really quickly. And it was okay to ship something and then, you know, next day uh, ship improvements and so forth. So you could move faster there without, um, you know, kind of waiting for long launch times. Yeah, and looking back, would you have done anything different? Now, knowing oh everything <laughs> Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, a lot of things. You know, you learn so much through the through, the, through, through any journey. And uh, this, here's just one thing that comes to mind. I'm happy to talk about other things too. But first thing that comes to mind to me is actually pricing. I think um, we completely undersold ourselves in the early days in terms of the value we provide to customers. You know, you go to market. You have you have a confidence problem. You have a um, you're like, oh gosh, I really hope people want this. And you, st you start charging really, really low. That we, we charge extremely low. And um, that was, you know, and, and then you start getting distraction. And then you ask, well, is it because of the prices or not? And then you get, you know, you're really worried about increasing prices. So looking backwards, I would really try to charge, um, you know, my advice to founders is um, try to go the opposite way. Start charging what you feel like is, you know, is the value that you provide and then uh, perhaps fix downwards versus fixing upwards. Because um, here's the issue it creates. This is, we're not, I'm not talking about revenue um, or, or like, you know, cash flow, although it is extremely important in these days. There's another thing that's even bigger, which is just business model. Because if you end up underselling your core business, the business may just not work in terms of the cost of acquisition and things like that. So you have to make sure that you, you walk towards a sustainable business model that can scale for many, many, many uh, years and customers. Yeah, and... Uh... Tober, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse, but 10 on 10 YC companies, all I always say they're all undercharged, especially the <laughs> It's the most common thing. I think every startup goes in and says, oh, uh, should I up it by 30%? And then no one blinks. If you're truly adding value, no one right. will blink. Totally. That's totally true. That's totally true. Well, it's a confidence thing. I feel, you know, you're stepping in the unknown. Building a company is a lot of like, you know, you kind of, um, you have this really, really big vision. You see this really big mountain or hill ahead and you want to climb it, but you know that you've never walked through this path before. And, you know, in every corner of the road, there, there's going to be a surprise and you just want to be ready for it. Um, so I think, um, you know, obviously you build confidence as you go through that path and I'm like, oh, great. I'm kind of, you know, I'm 5% in, 10% in. I feel a little bit more confident in my abilities, but I think confidence could still uh, is something that people build um, over their journeys. And it's good because it needs to come with humility too, because here's the issue as well. The, the market and the customers are always changing. If you feel as a leader or a founder that, oh, I know this already, I know everything, I know exactly how things are going to go, you're full of shit because you know, everything changes. So you have to have the humility of learning from, from um, 
from, from the customer and learning from how the market changes around you. So well said, so well said. Well, we, it, on my last question, it's going to be a meaty question, but we have seven minutes, so I'm going to turn it over to you, which is what, what does embedded finance mean to you? Like what is the market? And I know you're very bullish on embedded finance, but how should the founders here listening to us here be thinking about embedded finance and what's, what do you, how do you think this market evolves over the next five, 10 years? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's connected to what we said earlier around um, the basically what's good for the customer ends up winning. And the idea with embedded finance, the premise is pretty simple. It's basically that create as you when you build a new software system for the customer, the more end to end, the more inclusive, the more connected the system is for your customer, the better it is. And embedded products, whether it's fin embedded finance or other type of APIs you can bring into your, to your system, um, enable you to do that fast and in high quality. And I think that's the key. So I am I'm extremely bullish on this idea of uh, bringing in multiple components into your product driven by what your customer needs are. So my advice there for founders is, you know, maybe um, focus again on like, look at your customer, understand how the day-to-day -day look like, connect the dots and see how might I build something that not just solves a pain, like a specific, um, you know, standalone um, um, point of their flow, but rather the entire flow on its own. And that's, in, that they can look at the customer side of things. It includes, you know, finding a customer, like being out there, as well as, um, you know, figuring out the, the offer that you're going to create for them. Um, how do you price and package and how do you charge for it? And finally also get paid through it. And then how do you take it to accounting? And then how do you reconcile that across everything else that happens to your business? It's all connected in the mind of the, of the, of the business manager. It's not seven different departments like enterprise enterprises often are. Um, so connecting the dots, I think uh, is something that uh, this new space is embedded finance really, uh, really enables. I'll say one more thing about, uh, Fintech and embedded finance also as a part of it as a whole, um, which is especially now given the, everything that's happening in the markets, people are starting to be more realistic about what are good businesses and what are bad businesses. And one of the things that make a good business, and that's, that's going to sound pretty obvious for, for people, is you need to make more money than, you, than, you, than, you, than it costs you, right? Than the, than the goods cost you um, per unit. And it's really, really important. And you also need the cash flow to work out. So it's not like money in the future one day versus money out, you know, money coming in the future today versus money coming out of your pocket today. Um, so, so in FinTech, there's specifically a potential place where founders can, or product folks can get, um, distracted, which is you think you found product market fit because you gave away money for people, uh, or for businesses, you give basically fund financing, um, um, to, to users. And you feel like, oh my God, there's all these people who want this product. That's amazing. But make sure that you remember that, every, like, you know, uh, that, that's a cheap way of getting to product market fit. Um, people will always, you know, if you're walking down the street, someone offers you 10 bucks and tells you, you know, pay me someday, like two, maybe $2 later, of course you're going to take that offer. And it's not product market fit, it's just free money. So make sure w when you build your, fin your fintech, when you build your, your financial-based product, you really think about the unit economics and don't get too distracted by what could look like a product market fit. It's not product market fit if your product is not sustainable. Yeah, that's a great example. What you're essentially saying is 
if you are not making money on that lending product and you're essentially only subsidizing and kind of giving free money, then you don't know if this real product market fit. If you can charge enough to lend and make money, and if you can still retain the customer, then there's some product market fit. Is that right? Yeah. Like what if you and I come out of this chat today and we build a new subscription startup, we call it $1 a month, Dot com and we basically you subscribe and we give the user one dollar per month and they just get it to their bank account i'm sure you and i are going to get millions of users really quickly um but probably it will be hard in, um you know to build a business out of that yeah that's 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 very true in general but i can see how you're saying need to pay more attention in, in the embedded finance world like that's not happening let me uh ask you what are the kinds of Outside of payroll in embedded finance, are you seeing it as products being offered via APIs? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think financing, just to make it clear, is an extremely valuable tool. Um, you can really help people make their cash flow work. Um, you know, again, if you look at B2B companies, sometimes you get paid for services you provide in the future. So if you can align uh, the cash flow coming in with the cash flow going out to providing additional services for new customers, it can really be a win-win situation. So I feel like um, there is a lot of greatness happening there. You just need to be careful and make sure that it makes sense from a business standpoint. But um, that's that's kind of my, my higher level point. Um, I think insurance is another great example. You know, you go through different flows and different... Um, um, you know, product that you build online, whether it's a service or whether it's a physical product, like insurance um, is, a, is a good financial product, enables people like the customer to uh, mitigate risk. Um, and it's something that it's quite hard to build because on your own, because you got to really develop uh, um, underwriting knowledge. And it's a good place to start to use like embedded insurance. There's a bunch of interesting companies there, I think. Um, and there's, again, this space is brand new, so there's there's tons of opportunity. So I, I think there's a lot of, um, there's lots of interesting opportunities in that space today. Um, and the pattern is a product that helps your customer build the, like go through the end-to-end -end journey successfully and really uh, solve multiple pain points for them. But it's something that would take you 10 years to really figure out to do it in high quality. And that's where you go and you outsource really to that. Mm -hmm. um, that partner. Absolutely. Well, we are at time. Thank you so much, Toma, for sharing all of the perspectives right from the early founding days of Gusto to expanding to new sectors and embedded finance. And congrats again to the entire team. I know you all worked incredibly hard to launch uh, the new partnerships and the vision for embedded finance. For anyone looking to learn more, please visit gusto.com. Thanks, Anu. Hi, everyone. I hope you all can hear me. I'm waiting for the cue from the YC team. Great. So welcome, everyone, to YC's Founder Farsight. My name is Anu Hariharan, and I'm a Managing Director at Y Combinator, where I work with our growth stage companies. I'm here today with Tomer London, 
the co-founder and CPO of Gusto. I've known Gusto for, I think, close to now seven years um, and worked very closely with Tomer on the board. Gusto provides growing businesses with everything to take care of their team and was part of YC's Winter 2012 batch. Welcome, Tomer. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And today, Gusto has a special announcement to make where you just released a blog post um, about it, which is you're making it easier for software providers to bake compliance into embedded payroll, as well as new vertical SaaS partners, which is really exciting because now SaaS partners that sell laundromats, SaaS, construction, restaurants, they can all offer, offer payroll more seamlessly through Gusto. Yeah. So congrats, so congrats to you and your team. It would be good, Tomer, just to kick it off. If you can just explain what Embedded Payroll is and what the announcement is today. Yeah, thanks, Anu. Well, uh, again, just excited to uh, to have this chat with you. Yeah, today is really, really exciting for me. I feel um, this has been, in a way, more than 10 years in the making. Um, basically, what we're doing with Gusto Embedded is to help um, basically take 10, over 10 years of our experience building payroll software and compliance uh, built into it um, and making it available to any software platform, any software company who wants to ship their own payroll product to the market. And it's not just the software side, it's also the service side and the operation side. It's everything that's happening behind the scenes. You know, payroll is quite a complex thing. It's not just like a quick UX flow of, you know, you you put people's names and you say how much you want to pay them and you click and you're done. There's a lot happening behind the scenes uh, with filings and tax calculations and um, and um, you know multi-year-long um, um, conversations basically through uh, through no, through um, uh, this compliance um, uh, flows with different state agencies. There's fifty thousand plus. Um, uh, tax codes out there in the U.S. So anyway, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. It's not just the software. So anyway, today we're launching that. We're we're announcing this really um, uh, just a lot of great progress that's happening, both in um, signing up a lot of new uh, platforms across all these vertical SaaS players that you mentioned, um, whether it's construction vertical SaaS or dental offices vertical SaaS or accountants or uh, and more and more and more. Um, but also a bunch of new features and functionality. But we can talk about it later. Don't want to take all the time right now. Yeah. And, you know, Toma, you bring up a very good point about payroll. I didn't realize this when I first met you all maybe like seven years ago. But, you know, for most YC companies, we always say, ship fast, get feedback, iterate. And I remember very vividly you pointing this out to me. Um, which is, I think in the first year of Gusto, you all had less than 100 customers. And I asked you, wow, that's slow. Because usually in demo day, we often ask, or before demo day, we often ask, hey, if you signed up 100 in two weeks, can you sign up 1,000? And I remember this point you made. Well, if payroll doesn't work, it, it, there is no coming back. The customer will be displaced because they didn't get their paycheck. So it's one of those unique products where you had to make it work perfectly. There was no room for error. And that's why you all took a lot of time to scale it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you get payroll wrong, someone is not getting paid or even worse than that, in my opinion, um, 
you know, years later, you may get a notice from the IRS saying that you did your taxes wrong and now you need to go back. Um, if you're an employee and fix your W-2, like, you know, get new W-2s and work with IRS. Or if you're an employer, go back to employees who left you and are not a part of the company years now and um, go and work with their taxes. So um, the the cost of being wrong is extremely high. So um, I, I really think that there's a set of uh, product and technology um uh, software out there that you really have to get it right in order for for you to deliver the promise for your customers, and if and the cost of not doing that is terrible for your customers and then terrible for your business. Great. So I expect so many people today. I, I see it on the Twitter space are actually founders and CEOs. So before we dive into your launch today, I'd actually like to take this opportunity to discuss how to build for new verticals and how to think about this as a founder and CEO since quite a few of them are actually probably in the very early stages in the audience. So some background for the audience. Over the last 10 years, Gusto has scaled to build for customer segments, many customer segments. I don't know how many of you know this, but Gusto first started servicing startups. Then they started servicing SMBs, starting with Flores, then accountants. And now with Gusto embedded payroll, developers of their customers who are embedding payroll directly into software. So Toma, can you go back and tell us your journey of starting with startups? Why did you start? And if I remember right, Gusto was a pivot in the batch. It wasn't your application, but when you, but, but we'll save that for another time. But when you decided that payroll software is what you're going to build, why did you start with startups? And how did you sort of think about customer segments, especially in that first year? Yeah, totally. So I would say we started with this uh, realization that, um, you know, Josh, Eddie and I all come from small business families. My dad has a clothing store for 35 years now. Um, and seeing and growing up in that environment, seeing how it feels like to be a part of a, of a business and running a business, I learned that, you know, business owners and managers have all those different hats they need to wear. It's just incredibly busy. They need to be the salesperson and then the marketer and then the the cleaner and then the janitor and the accountant, like it's all in, in one, all these different hats. So we knew that businesses, specifically small businesses were very, um, um, you know, they really had this need of helping, of getting more um, leverage and software can be really, really, really great at that. Um, we also knew that this, we also really believe in this idea by building our own startup companies before Gusto, that the most important thing in any business is their people. And that's what makes or breaks the business. So if you kind of do, do this plus this together, we ended up with this really grand vision of our goal is to help, you know, any business, small, large, growing, um, to help, you know, basically build a great place to work where um, and really serve the entire life uh, of the, the employee life cycle so people can build great places to work. So that's kind of the big grand vision. So the question is, the founder is like, okay, that's cool, but where do you start? Um, and that's where kind of your story, Anu, comes in, which is starting not just with, I would say, startups, but also we, it was even much, much more narrow than that. Those first hundred customers were technology companies who are based in California, who have no health insurance or any other benefits because we were not able to support it, you know, and were agreed to be paid, you know, nine days after running payroll. So it's extremely, extremely small group of target customer to start. Um, and that's really where we started. And I think when you think about your own company and how to choose your customer segment, there's three important things that have to happen. 
first, um, you need to you need to make sure that you're choosing a segment where they have an important customer problem that they're trying to solve. Like it's kind of this you know painkiller versus vitamin analogy. The second thing is that you need to make sure that the product that you're building and you're starting small um, has to solve it, and customers have to love it. The third thing is that you need to be able to reach this customer, right? So important customer problem, your product actually solves it. And then finally, you can reach this customer. And startups was, a, or at least this, this really, really tiny group of startups was a good place for us to start because um, we could reach them. We were at a part of YC batch, a bunch of companies were around us, a lot of our network and people that we know um, um, was really, really easy to, to get to. And, and, um, and more importantly, um, technology companies are very viral. So when you start selling and if you do a good job solving problems for them, you can you actually get really nice word of mouth. Um, we knew that we can solve the problem for them because we really scoped it down to a problem we can solve with this initial product. And then finally, we knew it was an important problem because payroll is such a pain um, for, uh, for businesses today, as I mentioned earlier. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know that in the first year you uh, gave payroll nine days after the payroll was done. So what was your competition like? Was, I mean, how before Gusto, how did startups pay employees? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, 10 years ago, um, I think um, uh, if you kind of paint the picture of back then, the majority of the payroll industry um, was companies like ADP and Paychex and kind of really large, more traditional companies. And for you to run payroll, what you had to do is you had to pick up the phone and talk with someone and tell, tell them to run payroll. You had to take, you know, use fax machines in order to send the hours back and forth. You had to meet a person, someone in person, a rap in person in order to sign you up. So they believe you're a real business and underwrite you for payment. So um, it was the old kind of traditional world. Um, and I think uh, what, um, what, when we came in, uh, one of the insights was, you know, to the, this idea of, hey, all of this process can be made so much easier to use and simple so that you don't need to be a professional to run payroll and you should be able to do it, you know, on your computer on the weekend, in the evening without talking with anyone. Um, and that, that's kind of the, the, I would say, the first insight. The second insight was that employees are a critical part of the system. And if we build a really great experience for employees, um, it's going to make the employer's lives easier. So for example, employees enter their own information when they log in as a, or, or when they sign up and, and to, the, to the company as opposed to the employers need to, you know, kind of go back and forth with them. Um, and that was kind of the very, very, very initial thing. And to your point, like ask those customers who agreed to um, take on this product, despite the fact that we were 10, they took like, you know, like eight days to get paid. Um, they did it because we solved the payment that was much more important for them, which is just the, the, the complexity around payroll. And they, and for them, this was important enough. That's the, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, talk about product market fit. If after all that friction, they love the product and they're using, that's a sign that you truly are solving a pain point. Um, now let's, so you were working with startups, the majority of the first 100 startups, as you said, were tech startups based in California, where you were taking more than nine days to process payroll, but things were going really well. I remember NPS for Gusto from the very early days was very strong. So then why did you decide to build for SMBs? You could have pretty much just focused on startups. Why SMBs? 
Right. So as I mentioned earlier, we started with this really big vision of we want to go and we want to serve um, um, this, the larger market, uh, not just startup, but even not just SMBs. Um, but we had to start somewhere. So we started with startups and specifically start the, the, this narrower version of startups um, because that's where we felt we could get really great customer love with the product that we were able to build. But then as we spend more time and obviously started expanding, not just California, but multiple states, not just, you know, eight, like, you know, eight days to get paid, but same day, like next, like two days, then one day and then same day payments. Um, and then obviously supported health insurance and other things. We felt that we were ready to support, uh, um, you know, we kind of take the next steps to our towards our product vision and go to uh, to small businesses. The really important thing when you, in my opinion, when you move from one vertical and kind of start expanding towards your vision is you have to make sure that you maintain that early customer love. Um, you know, I know you mentioned like we had like, you know, the, the initial, our NPSs were always um, um, in the um, high 80s and that's just one measure not that nps is perfect in any way but it's a measure to show um, um customer love was extremely high and and that creates high word of mouth and trust and and really creates a really great um, um uh, kind of backwind for your growth and when you the, the risk of expanding too early is that your product is just not ready and then you're going to lose that so the way one of the ways that i think to know whether you're ready is to just look at your current customer base and look at the people who want to use your product the people who are using your product that perhaps are a little bit adjacent um to what you thought um you were supposed to serve and uh learn from them talk with them what do you like about the product and ask yourself whether you can um uh, take a few um, steps with your product to really double down on that and get a lot of customer love from this new segment. So the, the answer is already under your nose usually. If you don't get traction and from like, let's say, you know, you, you, you build, you have software for uh, hairdressers today and you believe that, you know, the same software can be used by spas, but you don't have a single spa customer and you just really hope it's going to work. I don't think that's a good strategy. I think you have to listen to your, your current audience. That's a very good point you make, which is, uh, I think that's one of the common mistakes I've seen founders make when they expand to a new vertical, is not deliberately, but accidentally losing focus of the existing customer segment. So how, I mean, tech startups are just very different from spas and florists. So how did you maintain the customer of the existing segment then? Like, what did you do to continuously measure that? So when we launched the initial product, although we started with a very small scoped audience, we never used language whether or, or we never built a product or used language to say that this product is just for startups. We've never done that. It was always like this is for um, you know businesses at different sizes. Um, we did talk about sizes a little bit, but it was never like just specifically startups um, because we knew this it would coming. It, it was coming, so we didn't know perhaps if it it would take one two or three years but we know that we knew that this is the next thing to do and, and perhaps like the the generalizable advice here is really think about your vision and make sure that you don't put yourself in a corner um when you do want to kind of move to the next uh, to the next thing we had that by the way with our brand which is kind of another thing with there's a, you know with there's two types of expansions right you can expand customer audience you can expand the product set that you're doing and one thing that we uh what we did have in the beginning that we put ourselves in the corner is we started the company with the name Zen Payroll. Uh, for folks who don't know, for the first few couple of years for the company, it was Zen Payroll, and then we uh, rebranded to Gusto. And um, that the reason what we quickly moved as fast as we could basically was because we saw that that initial name is not very 
to have forward looking if we're thinking about um, our wider strategy around um, you know creating this people platform um, for every single activity in your in your workforce uh, for all these different sort of companies. So it's not just payroll; it's also benefits and employee onboarding and software and hardware provisioning and uh, IT and um, um, and everything else that that happens in the employee lifecycle. Yeah, I remember, and it was not an easy transition, but I think you all did it at the right time. Well, I have um, three kids, and I can tell you that naming the company, renaming the company, was a much harder exercise than uh, finding the right name for my kids. I'm, I'm sure so. And I know because, um, you know, acquiring SMBs is not easy. And so when you're changing the brand name, you know, you have to put it pretty much you're starting from scratch. Um, that was going to be my next question, which is, you know, if you look at startups in general, um, they find most startups find it very hard and have struggled to tackle the SMB market. Why do you think that it's, you had, I mean, Gusto is an amazing success. I mean, you serve close to 200,000 SMBs, you're a beloved product in the SMB segment, but why do you think that is? Why have people historically struggled? Yeah, today we serve, you know, um, lots more, like much more than 200,000 businesses across all different sizes, whether it's customers, you know, whether it's small business we just started or companies, over, you know, they're on 500 employees. Um, so yeah, we, we reached a really a really nice scale um, across small businesses and scale companies. The, the, I think the reason why it has historically been so tough is because SMBs are so hard to reach, right? So it's these three points that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is point number three, which is, you know, you can have a great product that people love, um, but you can't reach the audience. So small businesses were extremely hard to reach. And I think something happened around that time when Gusto started where small businesses, there was a generational shift where people started trusting the internet more. And I believe that, um, for example, internet banking was a really big part of it. You know, if you remember back in, that day, in, in these days, um, around 2010 and, and, and the, those, those a couple of years around that area, you got um, just commercial banks pushing really strongly for people to use their online system and not come to the branch because it's just much, much better for their economics, better user experience. And they basically educated an entire generation of SMBs and um, that they can trust the internet with things like money. And then um, payroll was it, was, it was the right time for people to say, hey, can I do my payroll online? So you started looking at, you know, Google search results and things like that. And you know, it's like, hey, interesting, actually, you know, online payroll is becoming a thing. People are actually looking like they, they actually looking for something like this. So this is my intuition around like what happened back then and you know why that was the right time for Gus to start. I think if we were to start the company four years earlier, it wouldn't have worked so well because people were not ready yet and educated. So but back to today. So what's happening today and if if how do you do SMBs? I think so two things. I think one, um, SMBs are online. Small businesses are online. They're looking for solutions. They want to have their problems solved. They have a lot of pain points, as I mentioned earlier. And there's a lot of great companies who are already serving them. Um, but then that is already known for the past several years. So what's coming next? I think the next wave of this, and if I'm now to build a new small business focused company, I would focus on a vertical. I think that when you truly understand a specific customer segment, understand how they start their day, how they speak with their customers, how their business model looks like, you know, what's their common uh, difficulties and competition looks like, 
you can build a great product for them that's much uh, that's really tailored to their needs and small businesses especially now with the recession potentially coming you know there's different points of view there but um, in moments like this people want to consolidate and have everything in one place so if I were to start a new company today focused on SMB uh, it would probably be picking a vertical a specific small business segment that I understand really really well and going all in and building a great product for them that's what I would do and I think you can reach people really well this way because you know if you really understand like you know my dad's store clothing store right if you really understand clothing store you know where they hang out you know their language you know what speaks to them um, and you should be able to find a great scalable way of finding them online. That's a very nuanced, well-tailored advice, which is you're essentially saying vertical SaaS is going to be the new trend in SMBs and catering end-to-end for each vertical. Are there, I mean, I'm sure in Gusto you interact with all sorts of verticals. Are there some verticals you are more familiar with or more excited by the problem set that you see? Ah, so there's so many and you know it's so fun so I, I get to work with through this embedded um payroll business i get to speak in the morning with you know vertical SaaS for spas and salons and then go to someone who's focusing on construction uh vertical SaaS, and then moving to like dental offices and then you know uh lawyers and like laundry mats like it, it's it's kind of really really fun to learn about all these small restaurants like all these different small businesses um, I would say, you know, if there's any, I think there's some spaces that are just more competitive today. So, you know, if you kind of take a step back and you ask yourself, there's already probably companies that are vertical SaaS, right? If you look at companies like uh, Square and Toast, uh, for example, and um, so, so some companies, some verticals are much more developed than others. And probably um, the more exciting things are things that are uh, earlier in the, um, uh, in this space. So verticals that yeah. were not, they're not yet like kind of fully like modernized. Yeah, yeah, some of the ones you're pointing out like dental services or spa and salons still have a lot of room to grow. Um, that's true. Let me ask you this. Uh, I wanna jump to the third segment, which is developers, but before that, you've served a lot of startups, you've served a lot of SMBs. What's different about serving SMBs from a customer lens? What have you noticed they want versus that's different from what startups want? Is that any? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so different multiple things uh, come to mind. The the thing when you build a business focused on startups, um, there is actually a risk there. I would here's a note of caution: is that startups with the 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 economics their work if you can scale with them, because you know there's a high turnover company. If you you know literally think about a startup as a as a venture funded or a hopefully venture funded company. Um, they they come and go. They die a lot when the funding stops, and the the real economics, similar to VCs, how VCs work. The real economics come from the big winners. So if you're focused on startups, I would say that probably startups is a good place to start your journey. But you have to think about how do you scale up and keep those businesses with you when they reach thousands of employees or, or much much larger scale. Um, that's not the same dynamic with small businesses. So small businesses, the difference is that the scale is just much larger. There's a lot more of them. There's 6 million employers in the U.S. There's around 25 million, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, businesses that are not even employers. Um, and some of them stick, uh, stay along for a long, long, long time. Again, uh, companies for, that stay for decades, family businesses, and they never, they actually don't grow. Some of them do, but it's quite rare that they grow to thousands of employees. 
So you need to build a business model that supports that situation. So churn, like, you know, this business closure is still a big thing. Obviously, enterprise companies, large companies um, disappear much less. So you still have this high turnover of small businesses, but some of them stick. And then, the, and then the market is much larger. So you need to build a business model that really works well uh, for that uh, dynamic. And often it means thinking about things like share of wallet and increasing ACV over time and things like that. Um, there is you know, a bunch of other things to talk through around like the, custom, the type of customer too and how they think about their business um, and what their priorities are. I would say with startups, it's a, obviously growth really, really matters. The underlying premise of, of a startup is that they can grow to not basically to grow out of being a startup and being a big tech company, where small businesses, that's perhaps not the case. And the needs that they have are, as well as their, um, the way they, they think about pricing um, and their sensitivity to price is um, more focused to other needs, perhaps not about growth and more about maintenance and improved profitability and saving time so I can spend more time with my family as opposed to grow, 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 and, and try to uh, get to the next milestone. Yeah, that's very good points you made. And I think what you all did very well at customers, like truly understanding your different customer segment and their needs, and even building your you know support team uh, to scale with that, uh, keeping the lens of what the customer truly requires. Yeah, maybe I'll say one thing about that support piece. Um, I mentioned in the beginning that Payroll is not just um, technology, it's also operations and service. And I think that idea, that concept actually applies to other places too. And if you're building a company right now and you think about the solution that you're providing, put yourself in the shoes of the customer and don't think just about their online experience because you're a developer and that's kind of, or you're a designer or you, know, you just love technology and you just want to have everything online. Think about the entire experience, including the people, the service side, the operation side, um, um, the end-to-end -end experience, because the customer doesn't care about the fact that these are different departments or something like that. They just have one brand. For us, it's Gusto. And Gusto needs to be absolutely freaking delightful and awesome and fun to use. So you talk about it to your fellow business owners, um, whether you talk with someone on the phone or email or whether you just use our, our new app that we just launched within our platform. Yeah, that's such good advice, especially as you scale, because I think people forget um, it's not just one feature. It's like, what's the, how, how much friction are you removing from the customer end and how truly is it delightful? Um, now, let's talk about your next customer segment. So recently, Gusto has added developers as a new segment. I'll be honest, I never predicted this in Gusto's journey. So why did you pursue developers and how did you decide to service them? Yeah, so we've been working with development. We, our API was, uh, we have had a public API since 2013 and I have a lot of tech partners using this API, making just expanding the product functionality for Gusto and for our customers. But what this push with Gusto Embedded is really taking it to the next level. So the idea here is, again, I have a really big belief, and Gusto has a big belief in vertical SaaS. I think that in the end of the day,
what's best for the customer ends up in the long term being the, um, the you know, the, the reality. So I believe that for many segments, for many verticals, it's actually much better to have an all-in-one platform for your, to run your business or your small business. And if that's the case, then we want the payroll and HR and benefits and the entire thing around employee management should be a part of that platform. Um, so for us, for Gusto, it's like, okay, great. Well, we, ha- we know how to do this thing. We've been doing this for, um, for 10 years, for hundreds of thousands of, of, of companies. And uh, we can take and basically everything that we've built, not just the technology, but again, the compliance side as well, which is extremely tricky, um, and bake it in. And, and just basically bake it in as a product that's really easy to implement. So if you're a new um, a vertical SaaS player or you're, or someone who wants to expand their footprint to solve more problems for their customers, you should be able to um, build a payroll product and ship it in 30 days, 60 days, instead of spending 10 years like, like we did. Yeah, that's, you know, that's really like, I know payroll products takes a long time, but I know it wasn't, a, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been an easy decision uh, because if you think about it, you were directly acquiring these SMBs as your customers and offering payroll and then HR. And, you know, if you had to use the counter view to this, which is embedded finance feels a little bit like you're giving up the customer relationship through the partner. Is that true? How did you all think about it? Yeah, totally. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, um, there's kind of two things. There's what there is, there, there is the, how do you operation? Like, first, like, what do you believe the future of the industry is? And then you just, you have, you can't ignore reality. If that's the truth, then that's the truth. You have to go and do that. Like the Netflix example, the famous Netflix example of moving the killing the DVD business, moving to streaming, uh, because that's that's where they, where they saw the future and what blockbuster stayed behind and all that that's a great story um you know i'm sure it wasn't an easy thing to do at the time but they had to go through it um and then for for us what we when i think here you know i don't i don't know if it's going to be as big as in that kind of video streaming example but i do feel like there's a really big change here that's really great for customers so gusto is you know we can't we shouldn't be fighting it we should the other way around we should make it happen we should be the one to create that change. So that's like the optimistic side. Now that, okay, now here's the hard part, right? Which is like, oh gosh, like we have, we have this great business. It's going really well. People are really, really happy. Um, how are we going to, why would we move resources or how are you going to re- remove resources from, from this business and start building something new? And I think that's one of these hard business decisions that make a difference um, in the long run. And um, to do that, you know that you're probably sacrificing growth in your core business because you're taking away resources from it. But that's in order to make the long term um, much more sustainable and like really aligned with what's best for the customer. So that's why I feel for us, if, since we and this is something that you know I knew we definitely talked about in the board a lot. Like this is a a type of a decision that it's not it couldn't be a small product team that that wants to do this. This is like all the way CEO, executive staff, board. Everyone needs to understand that hey, we believe in this thing and we're going to go all in there, and that's the future. Um, so that's why we, we did it. And it wasn't an easy decision, but I think it's the right one. You made some two very important points there, which is one, you know, how important it is to be see where, what's right for the customer. And if the customer wants an all-in-one product, you know, you have to make this decision, which we don't know time will show, but make, as you said, may or may not cannibalize the current core business, but it's, it's like you have to, if you use the lens of make something people want, 
you know right. you see that your customer has been around now for 10 years and you see how the trend is changing and you respond to it right so i mean i think kudos to you all to have made that decision and i know it was something that gusto proactively pushed uh by you know it, it, sorry i knew you keep going good 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 Oh, I was about to say, you know, and and the example of like why I think it's better for customers just to make it real. It's so one obvious benefit is bringing it all into a single system, right? The data is integrated; it's all going in the same place. You trust a single vendor for you to build your barber shop or your dentist shop, um, and then you just run the entire thing from it, and it's all connected. But there's another thing, which is you can actually build a better payroll product this way. So, for example. If you are, you know, one of our partners is called Archie, and um, they basically focus on dent- this dentist space, and they people there get paid as a percent of production, um, like a percent basically of you know the revenue that they that they, they they create. And if that's the case, then you can get you could basically build a custom payroll system that just to focus on these type of workers, which a uh, um, horizontal um, you know solution like ADP Paychecks will not be able to, or Gusto will not be able to do because they're not customized just for your your situation like we have the same thing with a company uh called you know companies like called sense that does the um kind of the laundromats um um dry cleaning space and people there get paid by folds like number of um some of them get paid by number of basically again like the the, the activity that they create and the customer value they create and they can integrate that into the payroll system itself all connected so that's the some of the cool stuff you can build when you really understand the vertical you're in Yeah. Well, many in the audience and seeing our developers and some of founders. So how should they think about who to partner with? You know, this is another thing uh, which comes up as the number one question in YC officers. Build versus buy, right? Or build right. versus partner. So, when should a founder go directly to the industry and just build everything and and when when should they follow the embedded route? Right. Yeah. So I think that the 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 kind of the the um, I was just super the first step advice the the most basic advice is you need to own what is core, and then the next question okay that sounds cool but what is core what, what what does that mean how do you know what's core, and I think the answer there is to think about what is the unique insight that you have in the software in the business that you're creating, and you want to make sure you own your destiny around that insight. And that could be, hey, we have like a, um, you know, the system of record where we have all the data in one place, and that's where everything's coming from. So we really need to own the system of record. That's really the innovation. Or it could be that the innovation is a sort of one of the user experiences, or is a payments flow, or is a technology backend, like a security thing. Whatever it is that you're doing really uniquely, and you think is the kind of the driver of your business, you really need to make sure that that you own. So that's core. And then I would say. Um, partner or you know buy depends kind of depends how you define it but you know use like an external vendor for things that you want to uh, first that you want to try out so you know you you may think hey that could become a core one day but let's try this thing out and it's much cheaper to try it out with a partner uh, instead um, to kind of get to market quickly um, or things that you just don't want to actually like reinvent the wheel in and you just need to make it work so you know if I'm building a The product that needs to send SMS and it's that's just like one neat part of what I do, but it's not a huge deal. Then definitely, I'm going to use Twilio for that. I'm not going to um, rebuild the SMS delivery or uh, payments with Stripe and and so forth. Many examples like that. So um, the first question to ask, and I think it's really important for founders and 
and product executives to be aligned on is what is our core? What do we have to, where do we innovate and where and everything else, let's not uh, spend our resources there because we are so resource constrained. And then in terms of how to choose a partner, what I would advise is look at this from the customer lens. So ask yourself like for my customer, what would be a successful product here? And make sure that the product that you're, that the company that you're um, partnering with fulfills that, those needs. So for the example of payroll, just to, to use that as an example, a, if I am, a, if I am you know, a, a vertical SaaS like uh, Vagaro that has uh, stylists, you know, and they kind of in, in that space, um, and I want to go and, uh, and, and add, be able to pay them because they've managed their entire business through, uh, through Vagaro today, other than payroll, then I need to ask them, what, what is a good payroll system for them? And the answer is not just like a place where I can plug in data and click a button and end up having a payment on the other side the next day, but rather something that does not cause, like that I won't get fined in the end of the year because I miscalculated taxes or I misfiled payroll or something that will not, you know, get my employees to quit because they're, I screwed up their taxes. So you really got to think the end to end side of things like that could include support. For example, you get to make sure that whoever you partner with, you really understand what happens when there's an issue and the customer is having um, a problem. So customer point of view, that's my one liner there. Yeah, and in addition to what you said, uh, um, you know, about the resource constraint point, which is very real for startups, right? They never have the scale of resources that they need. And therefore, to like try and do everything, then you kind of drop the ball on a few things. Um, so the, in addition to the resource constraint point, I think the that's one that's real. The other thing that uh, that you're highlighting here is what's not core, right? Which is right. something like payroll. Having worked with Gusto, I could tell like it is so complex and so nuanced that I don't understand why everyone will try to build payroll. But sometimes it's like you need to know that to be able to figure out is it core or not and is it worth putting your resources against that. Yeah, yeah. The the there there's been. Uh... Um, I, I think that's a great, great, great way of uh, really clarifying it. I think maybe what we're talking about behind kind of to connect these dots is quality. You've got to make sure if at the end of the day, you want to ship a high quality product for your customers. So whatever you own, you have to put enough resources on. So it's successful and really high quality. Whatever you, everything else, you make sure that it's high quality by bringing in the right partner. So it's all about the end to end user experience in the end. You got to make sure that you don't put that aside. Uh, you know, one mistake that really often software companies do is they just quickly want to bring a partner up, set up, and just get something out quickly. Um, and they end up actually losing customer faith because of it and, and kind of screwing themselves because it's not just that they don't get the right attach rate. They also kind of lost uh, customer confidence um, in their in their product. Absolutely. And for the audience, I uh, highly recommend you read this book by Jeff Lawson, uh, Ask Your Developer. He actually has a very good framework for Build versus Partner, which a lot of the stuff, Toma, you actually touched on. Uh, but he actually talks about how everything, like most software is going to move towards embedded and why um, developer becomes the primary customer. And then through the lens of the developer, how you think about the end customer. 
So it resonates a lot today in terms of what you're saying. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about embedded finance. Your announcement today makes it is is based essentially saying that you're going to make it easier for software providers to bake compliance into embedded payroll. You also mentioned that many of your developers have been using the payroll API since 2013. I would assume that they would have assumed that compliance is baked in. Is that not true, or what? additional compliance work is going on to this? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So there's a bunch, there's, not, there's uh, we, we count, we counted in, like just in the first three months, there's over 16, there's around 16, that's the number I saw, um, new features and functionalities that were added um, specifically around around this stuff. So there's a, there's a long list, but I'll give you the kind of the, an example of what I mean. So one of the things that we launched and I'm really excited about is this idea of embeddable uh, workflows. So you so the way you use embedded so, so how does it actually look like to build your own payroll product with uh with embedded right there's kind of two paths path number one is you have just everything is apis so you come in and you custom build every single thing exactly the way the user experience the way you want it so you, it's really like every single thing adding an employee new employee uh doing a tax setup running reports running payroll um all these things are just completely um customized there's another way which is you and that's kind of one of the new things that we're talking about here is um, you actually use pre-built flows that we already built for you and you just integrate them into your app. And then you can pick and choose, hey, to that conversation earlier with what's, co what's core and what's not, here's the area that I wanna innovate. It could be, for example, run payroll, but here's the area that I don't care much about and that's like state tax setup. And um, why that is important is because in kind of where compliance comes in is that when, we, when you use these pre-built flows, we bring in a lot of our knowledge and experience in the past 10 years to make sure that these flows are right for the customer, not just in the way we ask you know, for data inputs, but also the way we do validations and the way we keep updating things. Because regulation changes every year for sure, but sometimes every quarter and every month, depends on the state and the local government. So these components just update with the latest regulations. You don't need to kind of keep track of that. So these are, this is an example of what I mean by you know, built-in compliance. Obviously, you know, everything that we do in Gusto.com, like just since day one is all about making sure that we protect the customer. That's our job. But here we make it really easy for developers to both ship something quickly out to the market and make sure that it's um, uh, it's compliant for the long term and no one comes back a few years later with an issue. Yeah, did I even read this right on your blog post? Did you say like one third of the companies in the U.S. get fined for some kind of mistake on payroll? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's really painful because um, again, like the, the bad payroll means fines, and a third of companies in the U.S. today get fined every year for not doing payroll correctly, and um, that, that's that's pretty bad for for folks and pretty bad experience. So. Um, the goal is to make sure that as this this industry goes through this transition and you have all these vertical SaaS companies integrate payroll, they make sure that they protect their customers. So they're not a part of that statistic. Got it. And in general, compliance is really hard, right? It's, it's just not just for payroll. It's definitely the hardest part of payroll. But if you think about fintech companies that are building for various customers, uh, lending, healthcare, they all have compliance. What advice do you have for founders who are essentially building in complicated industries uh, focused on compliance? What did Gusto do right in the early days that has served you well today? Right. I think 
my first advice there is to understand which part of your product is reg like highly regulated and you really got to get it right and accurate and there's and then which parts of your product are not and that is important because of the way you set up your your culture and how you build software you know there's like this old kind of facebook uh tagline around uh move fast and break things um and i think that um you know, I know that they've changed it since, but it, it does give like a, a sense of like this idea of like, hey, some things can be fixed later. And, but, but the truth is there, the complimentary is that some things can't. So you really need to make sure where you spend a lot of your time um, and you put quality first, you don't, you never ship anything to customer that's not absolutely perfect. Whereas on the other, but also letting, enabling your culture to uh, have parts of the company that's much more iterative and fast and can quickly learn and adjust with new inputs. It's not a monolith, it cannot be a monolithic culture. So that will be my, my first kind of advice around building um, engineering product design teams in this kind of compliance focused, in a compliance focused area. The second thing is to really embrace cross-functional work. And what that means is early on in your startup journey, bring in like amazing, like top, top class um, regulatory compliance legal folks. I always say that in Gusto's our secret sauce is our is actually our compliance and legal team. Um, because they're they are not just extremely knowledgeable, but we choose folks who are also creative and they're builders. So they come in and they work with our product teams to make sure not just how we how we you know protect the customer, uh, but also how do we innovate and make something better for them. So bring that early on. Make sure they're a part of the brainstorms and what might make the product great. Um, and we've done that one of our very, very first hires and you and I talked about it in another conversation uh, was, uh, was, you know, a compliance uh, person from, uh, from, from paychecks. And then another person was someone who built the compliance, uh, was really in charge of the compliance for, for two major uh, other payroll providers. So um, really, really uh, important to bring that early on to the culture. Yeah, so I want to double click on both for this group. So number one, you said you have to be clear on what can't be broken versus what can be. Um, with your EPD, engineering product design and data team. So go back to the first year of Gusto, first or second year, first two years. How did, what was your framework or guidance to your engineering team at the time? Like what aspects of payroll did you say was okay to like ship and iterate versus what aspects was not okay? Yeah, 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 it's a, it's a I love that. Okay, so I'm gonna bring myself back to that world. Uh, in the very, very early days. And the first thing that comes to mind is that the the core of the tax calculations and compliance, and in the end of the day, making sure that the, the outcome of the, the the actual, the payroll system in the physical world, not the software, the physical world, right? Pay, move, money moving and, and, and uh, IRS filings and things like that, that has to be right. And there's no cutting corners there, zero, right? Um, so that's one. On the other hand, here's an area where it's totally fine. Um, it took us, I want to say a year and a half maybe, or something like that, to actually start charging customers. And what we did is we basically never got around to build, or it took us a while to get around to build a billing system for our customers. Now, our customers chose to pay so they're already at that point of time everyone uh, you know they were part of a paid package and they knew that they were paying but they probably noticed and didn't complain by the way 
uh, perhaps that they were not getting actually charged. In the end, we did start charging them, obviously. So that's an example of something that can totally broken, does not have like a customer impact. If anything, it has, um, you know, um, you know, more impact on you. Uh, but uh, totally the right way to prioritize looking backwards too. Um, here's another place to kind of make it a little bit more nuanced, which is user experience, right? So you could actually say another uh, viewpoint is like, hey, if what's important is the physical world, then maybe it's okay to have a lower end UI in some areas. And my answer there was actually is, is actually um, that's a, that's a really tricky proposition because for us, one of our core innovations was user experience innovation. It had to look and feel and really um, um, like 10x better than everything else out there in terms of the user experience. So we were so we had a we didn't uh, cut corners there in terms of where we wanted to get um, uh, kind of our goals. But what we did do there is iterate really quickly. And it was okay to ship something and then, you know, next day, uh, see improvements and so forth. So you could move faster there without, um, you know, kind of waiting for long launch times. Yeah, and looking back, would you have done anything different? Now, knowing oh my everything <laughs> Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, a lot of things. You know, you learn so much through the through, the, through, through any journey. And uh, this, here's just one thing that comes to mind. I'm happy to talk about other things too. But first thing that comes to mind to me is actually pricing. I think um, we completely undersold ourselves in the early days in terms of the value we provide to customers. You know, you go to market. You have you have a confidence problem. You have a um, you're like, oh gosh, I really hope people want this. And you, st you start charging really, really low. That we, we charge extremely low. And um, that was, you know, and, and then you start getting distraction. And then you ask, well, is it because of the prices or not? And then you get, you know, you're really worried about increasing prices. So looking backwards, I would really try to charge, um, you know, my advice to founders is um, try to go the opposite way. Start charging what you feel is, you know, is the value that you provide. And then uh, perhaps fix downwards versus fixing upwards. Because um, here's the issue it creates. This is we're not, I'm not talking about revenue um, or, or like you know cash flow, although it is extremely important in these days. There is another thing that's even bigger, which is just business model. Because if you end up underselling your core business, the business may just not work in terms of the cost of acquisition and things like that. So you have to make sure that you you walk towards a sustainable business model that can scale for many 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 uh, years and customers. Yeah, and uh, Tomer, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse, but 10 on 10 YC companies, all I always say they're all undercharged, especially the <laughs> It's the most common thing. I think every startup goes in and says, oh, uh, should I up it by 30%? And then no one blinks. If you're truly adding value, no one right. blinks. Totally. Um, That's totally true. That's totally true. Well, it's a confidence thing. I feel, you know, you're stepping in the unknown. Building a company is a lot of like, you know, you kind of... Um, you have this really, really big vision. You see this really big mountain or hill ahead and you want to climb it, but you know that you've never walked through this path before. And, you know, in every corner of the road, there's going to be a surprise and you just want to be ready for it. Um, so I think, um, you know, obviously you build confidence as you go through that path and I'm like, oh, great. I'm kind of, you know, I'm 5% in, 10% in. I feel a little bit more confident in my abilities, but I think confidence could still uh, is something that people build um, over their journeys. And it's good because it needs to come with humility too, because here's the issue as well. The, the market and the customers are always changing. If you feel as a leader or a founder that, oh, I know this already. I know everything. I know exactly how things are going to go. You're full of shit because, you know, everything changes. So you have to have the humility of learning from, from um, 
from, from the customer and learn from how the market changes around you. So well said, so well said. Well, we, it, on my last question, it's going to be a meaty question, but we have seven minutes, so I'm going to turn it over to you, which is what, what does embedded finance mean to you? Like what is the market? And I know you're very bullish on embedded finance, but how should the founders you listening to us here be thinking about embedded finance and what's what do you how do you think this market evolves over the next five ten years? Yeah. Yeah I think it's connected to what we said earlier around um, the basically what's good for the customer ends up winning. And the idea with embedded finance, the premise is pretty simple. It's basically that create as you when you build a new software system for the customer, the more end-to-end, the more inclusive, the more connected the system is for your customer, the better it is. And embedded products, whether it's fin- fi- embedded finance or other type of APIs you can bring into your, to your system, um, enable you to do that fast and in high quality. And I think that's the key. So I am I'm extremely bullish on this idea of uh, bringing in multiple components into your product driven by what your customer needs are. So my advice there for founders is, you know, maybe um, focus again on like, look at your customer, understand how the day-to-day look like, connect the dots and see how might I build something that not just solves a pain, like a specific, um, you know, standalone um, um, point of their flow, but rather the entire flow on its own. And that's, they can look at the customer side of things. It includes, you know, finding a customer, like being out there as well as, um, you know, figuring out the the offer that you're going to, create for them? Um, how do you price and package and how do you charge for it? And finally also get paid through it. And then how do you take it to accounting? And then how do you reconcile that across everything else that happens to your business? It's all connected in the mind of the, of the, of the business manager. It's not seven different departments like enterprise, enterprises often are. Um, so connecting the dots, I think, uh, is something that uh, this new space is embedded finance really uh, really enables. I'll say one more thing about uh, fintech and embedded finance also as a part of it as a whole, um, which is especially now given the, everything that's happening in the markets, people are starting to be more realistic about what are good businesses and what are bad businesses. And one of the things that make a good business, and that's that's going to sound pretty obvious for for people, is you need to make more money than you than you than you than it costs you, right? Than the than the goods cost you. Um, per unit and it's really, really important. And you also need the cash flow to work out. So it's not like money in the future one day versus money out, you know, money coming in the future today versus money coming out of your pocket today. Um, so, so in FinTech, there's specifically a potential place where founders can, or product folks can get um, distracted, which is you think you found product market fit because you gave away money for people uh, or for businesses. You give basically fund financing um, um, to, to users. And you feel like, oh my God, there's all these people who want this product. That's amazing. But make sure that you remember that, every, like, you know, uh, that, that's a cheap way of getting to product market fit. Um, people will always, you know, if you're walking down the street, someone offers you 10 bucks and tells you, you know, pay me someday, like two, maybe $2 later, of course you're going to take that offer. And it's not product market fit, it's just free money. So make sure w- when you build your, fin- your fintech, when you build your, your financial-based product, you really think about the unit economics. Don't get too distracted by what could look like a product market fit. It's not product market fit if your product is not sustainable. Yeah, that's a great example. What you're essentially saying is 
if you are not making money on that lending product and you're essentially only subsidizing and kind of giving free money, then you don't know if this real product market fit. If you can charge enough to lend and make money, and if you can still retain the customer, then there's some product market fit. Is that right? Yeah. Like what if you and I come out of this chat today and we build a new subscription startup, we call it $1 a month dot com and we basically you subscribe and we give the user one dollar per month and they just get it to their bank account i'm sure you and i are going to get millions of users really quickly um but probably it will be hard in, um you know to build a business out of that yeah that's 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 very true in general but i can see how you're saying need to pay more attention in, in the embedded finance world like that's not happening let me uh ask you what are the kinds of Outside of payroll in embedded finance, are you seeing as products being offered via APIs? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think financing, just to make it clear, is an extremely valuable tool. Um, you can really help people make their cash flow work. Um, you know, again, if you look at B2B companies, sometimes you get paid for services you provide in the future. So if you can align uh, the cash flow coming in with the cash flow going out to providing additional services for new customers, it can really be a win-win situation. So I feel like um, there is a lot of greatness happening there. You just need to be careful and make sure that it makes sense from a business standpoint. But um, that's that's kind of my, my higher level point. Um, I think insurance is another great example. You know, you go through different flows and different... Um, um, you know, um, product that you build online, whether it's a service or whether it's a physical product, like insurance um, is, a, is a good financial product, enables people like the customer to uh, mitigate risk. Um, and it's something that it's quite hard to build because on your own, because you got to really develop uh, um, underwriting knowledge. And it's a good place to start to use like embedded insurance. There's a bunch of interesting companies there, I think. Um, and there's, again, this space is brand new. So there's, there's tons of opportunity. So I, I think there's a lot of, um, there's lots of interesting opportunities in that space today. Um, and the pattern is a product that helps your customer build the, like go through the end to end journey successfully and really uh, solve multiple pain points for them. But it's something that would take you 10 years to really figure out to do it in high quality. And that's where you go and you outsource really to that. Mm-hmm. Um, that partner. Absolutely. Well, we are at time. Thank you so much, Toma, for sharing all of the perspectives right from the early founding days of Gusto to expanding to new sectors and embedded finance. And congrats again to the entire team. I know you all worked incredibly hard to launch uh, the new partnerships and the vision for embedded finance. For anyone looking to learn more, please visit gusto.com. Thanks, Anu.